Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Bhutang tamang sankhang namasami well, good afternoon to everyone. It's uh, continuing uh, Acharya Puja Day, uh, day to uh, recollect our teacher and uh, to offer our gratitude and respect to Lumpur Sumato. Uh, I realize that for, for many of us who probably have heard the, uh, these different stories or uh, these different themes that I'll talk about many times over, but uh, uh, this says the the picture of Lumpur Sumato is very familiar, or the image of the Buddha is very familiar. It doesn't do any harm to keep being reminded <laughs> and to uh, to hold up this uh, these these qualities in this person's life and teaching and their wisdom as a, a good example for us. Uh, for those. Uh, uh, who are not so familiar with Lumpur Sumato's life. He was born in 1934 in Seattle, in northwest uh, of the United States, and uh, into a, um, an Episcopalian Christian family. So he was brought up in the Christian church and uh, uh, even thought about becoming a Christian minister, an Episcopalian minister at a certain point. He was drawn towards spiritual questions and spiritual issues, but had uh, too many doubts to fit comfortably into the, uh, the sort of traditionally Christian mo uh, mold that he found in the United States. When he was growing up, he was uh, fascinated by China. Uh, he didn't know any Chinese people, but he was uh, very attracted by uh, China, Chinese history, Chinese language, and um, he uh, 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 had heard that there was a university program in China, I think St. John's University in Shanghai, that had a, a program for foreign students. And he, at the age of 13 or 14, he was all lined up to get his name down to, to go and study there in the future when he was had graduated from high school and was a, of a, an age to go to university. And so when the, the communist revolution happened in mainland China, he was really... Uh, and that opportunity was shut down uh, when he was about 15. Then he was uh, heartbroken. He really wanted to go to China. Uh, when he finished high school and went to the University of Washington uh, in Seattle, uh, his main uh, field of study was Chinese, Chinese language. So he still managed to get uh, drawn to that uh, or get involved in that. So he was a, a, a student uh, that was uh, born in 1934, so he went uh, to college in the early 50s. And as he has often told, told the story, uh, he fell in love with a Japanese woman, a young Japanese woman, and his parents were very opposed to uh, a relationship with someone from, a, uh, from a, uh, such a foreign country. And um, so they forbade, uh, they forbade him to continue that relationship. And um, with a, a quote-unquote broken heart, he uh, uh, decided to join the Navy and uh, get away from it. So he, he, uh, he dropped his studies, stepped out of the university, joined the Navy, and then was a, a medic in the US Navy for four years. This was during the time of the Korean War. So he wasn't a, a combatant. He was uh, uh, he didn't pick up weapons to, to, uh, and was in battle, but he was on a, uh, a, sh a supply ship across the Pacific during those years, the early 50s. His first introduction to Buddhism came in, in those years. I mean, he was um, uh, suffering a lot still and uh, had a, 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 many, many questions. He had strong spiritual inclinations, but so many doubts and... Uh, uh, such um, uh, an active, hyperactive thinking mind. Uh, at that time, the works of D.T. Suzuki were being translated into English, and a friend of his on the ship, another uh, fellow um, uh, military officer, uh, had 
come across some of these um, teachings or books of D.T. Suzuki and one day gave him a copy uh, of a, of a D.T. Suzuki book and he said, I read two paragraphs and I realized I'm a Buddhist. And that was, so that was his uh, introduction and the connection with the Buddhist tradition. And so first of all, it was through, through Zen. And then so when he was, um, had the opportunity um, more in the, when they were in port in California, if he could pick up some of these uh, Buddhist books in the, in the English bookshops, um, you know, or spiritual bookshops, uh, then he would do so. Uh, he finished the Navy and went back to university and uh, did a, uh, then a postgraduate degree in Asian history at uh, UC Berkeley in, uh, in uh, California. So he'd moved down from Washington State to California. And then it was uh, during that, those years as a, a graduate student, um, that would be the very end of the 50s, uh, early 60s, he got married. Uh, to somebody else, <laughs> not, not, not the Japanese woman that he'd known before. He, got, uh, he said, we had one really good year and one really bad year. So uh, again, he's often talked about uh, that, uh, that time of his life uh, when he was a graduate student in Berkeley. So he finished his uh, graduate studies and then that was uh, about 1962 and that was right at the time that uh, President Kennedy had started the Peace Corps program uh, and so that uh, he took the initiative to be part of the very first Peace Corps group. And uh, he, uh, because he had Chinese language skills, uh, after their, their initial training, uh, which was in Hawaii, uh, he got a, a job teaching in a Chinese school in Borneo. So again, many people would have heard him talking about his time in Sabah in Borneo, uh, in, sort of in the Indonesian archipelago area. Uh, and uh, so he was uh, teaching in a, a Chinese school. And he still has friendships that uh, he made then in, in the Peace Corps that have lasted till the, this very day. His, his interest in Buddhism continued, and uh, he had um, a friend who was in Hong Kong um, who knew he was interested in Buddhist literature. And so he sent him the books by Charles Luke. Some of you might have seen Chan and Zen Training in particular. Uh, Lu Kuan Yu is his Chinese name, Charles Luke was his uh, uh, Western name. And uh, that had a very profound effect. So when he started to, to get interested in meditation and wanting to, to, to practice meditation, he took the, the, uh, the teachings that were described in one of these Charles Luke books as his meditation guidance. And that was the Dharma Talks from a, a retreat led by Great Master Xu Yun, uh, who was a uh, the teacher of Master Xuanhua, and uh, he was so respected in China, he was made the, the head, the, the, sort of the Sangharaja, the supreme patriarch of all five separate line lineages of Buddhism in China, which is, um, shows that he must have been extraordinarily uh, highly, highly respected, that everyone could agree that you know, this is the one who's most worthy of, of respect and to be put in a position of leadership. So the, the Charles Luke had done a very, com, a very skilled, competent job of, of transcribing these, these Dharma talks. And the meditation that he described was this investigation of the question, who am I? The, the Huato, I think it's called in Chinese, but forgive my bad Chinese. <laughs> and, uh, and then so uh, as a, a layman in, in Borneo working in the Peace Corps, then he used this meditation method and found it uh, very, very helpful and uh, insightful, illuminating, investigating the, the, uh, the koan, the kung an, uh, the koan of, of who am I. Fast forward, his two years in the Peace Corps came to an end. He wanted to stay in Southeast Asia and particularly to continue Buddhist practice and studies. And he taught for a little while at university, Thomasite University in Bangkok, teaching English. And then he realized, I want to go into the monastery. And so he... Uh, started connecting up with Buddhist groups in, in Thailand and um, eventually uh, ended up going to the northeast and uh, I went to a, uh, a monastery in Nongkai and became a novice there. 
One of the things about his life that people often wonder if his interest was in, in Zen, first of all, D.T. Suzuki, and then the, the, uh, the Dhamma teachings of Great Master Shuyun, it had this sort of Zen and Chan background, and that was his sort of first interest. How did he end up um, in Theravada? And uh, <coughs> when uh, he was um, many years ago, they used to have the Buddhist Society Summer School, the Buddhist Society in London. They'd have a summer school. They still do, um, but it's in a different place now. So uh, they would hire this, this stately home, uh, High Lee, in Hoddesdon, here in Hertfordshire. And about 120 people would gather, for, uh, members of the Buddhist Society, from the Tibetan tradition, Zen tradition, and Theravada tradition. And uh, Christmas Humphreys was the founder of the Buddhist Society. Uh, it had been started in 1926, so it was one of the oldest Buddhist institutions in the, in the West. And um, so Christmas Humphreys was a very powerful figure. He was a very devoted practitioner of Zen. And, uh, and the, one of the other main teachers was Irmgard Schlegel, uh, who became uh, Nyokyoni, became an ordained Zen priest. So for the Zen tradition, the, uh, in the Tibetan tradition, uh, Mike Hookham, who was a disciple of Chogyam Trumpa, was a, a teacher for the Tibetan tradition. These you know, very, very powerful, uh, erudite, eloquent teachers, people with, uh, also with a, a um, very skilled and, uh, and knowledgeable voices for the northern Buddhist tradition, the Mahayana and Vajrayana tradition. And um, uh, on this particular occasion, uh, the, uh, uh, at, the, at the summer school, so uh, every evening, the, 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 the way that the summer school worked, people would divide into different classes during the day. Every evening there'd be a sort of a communal talk uh, that everyone, all 120 people would gather and listen to this presentation. And so it was, uh, they'd invited uh, Ajahn Sumedho to give the evening talk. So we gathered there in the hall with uh, you know, 120 people, the Tibetan tradition, Zen tradition, a few, a few Theravadans. And... Um, he, uh, uh, he, he began by saying, uh, people often wonder why I chose Theravada Buddhism uh, as opposed to, to Zen or Tibetan. And you could feel the, the atmosphere in the room tightening. It's going to be this diatribe against Mahayana Buddhism or everything that's wrong with Zen and Tibetan Buddhism. And he, and he very skillfully let the kind of pregnant pause kind of hover in the air. He said, the reason why I chose Theravada Buddhism instead of Zen was because I'd been in Japan in the winter when I was in the U.S. Navy, and I knew how cold it could get. And I know they don't heat those Zen monasteries. <laughs> so because I was afraid of the cold, I decided to choose nice, warm, and sunny Thailand instead of, um, instead of uh, icy cold Japan. The, the atmosphere in the room <laughs> became a lot more relaxed and... Uh, it was a very, very different, very different mood. But it was a, that was a really good example of uh, Lumpur Sumato as a skillful teacher, and also very humorous, <laughs> kind of uh, able to uh, to tell a good story and make a, and make a good point and, and to teach and to to see that, uh, like in that sort of instance, something that has made uh, made a huge difference, I would say, in the in the Buddhist world and the world generally, that the Lumpur Sumato choosing. Theravada Buddhism as his mode of practice and, and, um, and teaching, that, um, that's had a very significant impact. None of us would be here. We wouldn't be here in this, this, uh, in this place with, this, uh, with these robes and the, this building and, uh, and our way of life if he had chosen Japan or, 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 uh, or Tibet rather than, than, uh, than Thailand. But uh, the fact that was chosen on, ooh, you know, fear of the cold is a... An interesting way that something very significant and extremely positive has come from a, a kind of a, 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 um, a, a rather worldly preference, I would, I would say, and he would he would acknowledge too. But uh, so that that was uh, rather than a big philosophical uh, decision, it was more just something very very practical and very human that was the deciding factor. So he was uh, a novice at the uh, this little monastery in. Uh, Nongkai, and it was a very intense meditation monastery, and so it was a formal practice and sort of retreat a lot of the time. And uh, he had the insight that if he really wanted to be a monk for, uh, and be a monk for the rest of his life, 
And he realized, well, I know how to meditate and I can sit in a hut by myself, but I don't know how to live a life. I don't know how to, to function as a, as a monk in terms of society or in terms of a group or how to live. And, and you can't really live in retreat, in sort of silent retreat, doing everything very precisely and slowly and carefully for an entire lifetime. And he, uh, he interestingly had the insight that what he needed was to learn the monastic discipline. If he was going to become a bhikkhu, who's still a novice, he realized, I need, uh, I need to, um, to be in a place where I can learn the monastic discipline and I can learn how to live as a monk in, in much more varied circumstances and then I'll be able to, to uh, live, this, uh, live this life till the end of my days. And uh, so that was his, uh, his thought. And, uh, and then just after his bhikkhu ordination, it just so happened that a, a disciple of Ajahn Chah arrived at the monastery as a visitor. Uh, Tan Somai, I think was his name, and uh, he had family in Nongkai, and uh, he had been there going to, to visit for a funeral, and he was uh, the, sort of the, um, the most sort of proper and strict monastery in, in Nongkai, so he had gone to, to stay there as a, as a strict forest monk. And the young uh, Tan Sumato, newly ordained Bhikkhu Sumato, was really impressed. Well, this monk's very very composed, very quiet, he does everything very very neatly and very properly. You know, I wonder where he's from, or who's his teacher? And again, mysteriously, strange, uh, strange conditions, almost none of the, the monks in that monastery spoke any English, but this visiting monk did, because he had been in the Thai Navy during the Korean War as well, and so he picked up a bit of English while he was uh, in the military. And... Um, so amazingly, he was able to converse with, with this visiting monk. And he told him he's a disciple of Ajahn Chah down in Ubon province. And uh, so then the, the very newly ordained uh, Bhikkhu Sumato asked his preceptor if he could um, have permission to, to travel down to, to Ubon and meet uh, uh, Venerable Ajahn Chah and possibly to train with him. And as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> so that was uh, 1967. He became a bhikkhu, and uh, his introduction to, to Lumpur Chah was at that time. And um, so he, uh, he was very impressed from the beginning with, with Lumpur Chah, and um, he was still quite keen to, uh, to do a lot of formal meditation. So after six months at uh, Wapapong, he asked permission to go and, and practice by himself on a remote uh, little um, uh, kind of, uh, a, a remote area of Sakonnakorn province, uh, um, uh, Pupek Mountain, and uh, Lumpur Chah gave him permission to go and, and sort of go into sort of his fulfill his hermit fantasy. Uh, but uh, uh, again, Lumpur Sumedha said Lumpur Chah was really cunning, very very skillful, because you know, the entire monastery went to see him off at the train station, and kind of with flowers and and uh, he's, a, he's a newly uh, ordained bhikkhu. He's very still very very young. So the Ajahn and the entire monastery, all the senior monks, everyone goes out and pays respects and sees off you know, this, this young Farang monk uh, at the train station. And so he has this very positive memory of, uh, of Wat Bapong and Ajahn Chah and the, and the Sangha there. So I think Lumpur Chah probably guessed that things were going to get difficult <laughs> sooner or later on Pupek Mountain. And uh, naturally they, they did. And when he got that, when the young uh, uh, Ajahn Sumato became very sick and was you know, stuck in a, a tiny little kuti being sort of cooked in the hot season and being very ill, he kind of remembered, oh, Wapapong, there were really nice monks there, and that teacher was really wise, and I, maybe I should go, <coughs> rather than trying to pursue my hermit fantasies, maybe I should go back and um, and uh, stay with Ajahn Chah. So he did, and uh, then he um, uh, uh, went back, and his um, the, the reason why he founded... Uh, what Pananachad is also something I thought I'd share with you. So along with as interesting sort of uh, uh, conditions whereby he became a Theravadan in the first place, fearing, fear of the cold, <laughs> and that he got to hear of Ajahn Chah because you know, a monk who happened to be able to speak some English happened to come from Ajahn Chah's monastery through his, his sort of a, a, a retreat monastery in Nongkai. Um, uh, the the conditions that came together for him to take up teaching because uh, he was very resistant to being a teacher and taking responsibility and many other westerners were showing up by the early 70s and and so the the young Ajahn Sumato was quite keen to not have to be looking after all these 
you know, weird and crazy Farangs, these, these foreigners. And, uh, and so he was, uh, he had, uh, Ajahn Chah had asked him to, to take responsibility and, and, and teach uh, this group of, of uh, young Westerners during a rains retreat. And uh, things had been very, very difficult, very challenging. And as soon as the retreat was over, then uh, uh, Ajahn Sumedha took the opportunity to <laughs> scoot off to central Thailand and then take, take up an invitation to go on pilgrimage to India, to the holy places. So when he was in India, traveling around the holy places, the place where the, the Buddha was born, where he was enlightened, where he gave the first teaching, and where he finally passed away, during that time in India, something shifted in his heart, something really changed, and he realized, I've been so driven by me, my practice, my solitude, what I want for myself. And he was really hit by everything that Lumpucha had done for him. And that how much effort and uh, and kindness Lumpucha had shown towards him, and he and it just sort of hit him like this massive wave of realization. My goodness, he's done so much for me, and uh, and I've uh, got so many blessings on account of what I received from Lumpucha. And he decided he would just go back to Thailand and bow at Lumpucha's feet and say, "I offer I offer you my life, Tawai Chiwit." It's the expression they use in Thailand, Tawai Chiwit, I donate my life to you. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And uh, as uh, <coughs> Ajahn Sujito very dryly put it, uh, the, uh, uh, the Venerable Ajahn Chah's response is not recorded, but it was something along the lines of, <coughs> which is the Northeast Thai way of saying, I hear what you say. It can mean yes or no, or let me think about it. It's a very... A uh, broad range of meanings can come from that. Huh. It's, it's actually in the Lao English Dictionary. <laughs> and Ajahn Chah used to say that a lot. It's like, I hear what you say, duly noted, yes, this has been cognized. So, um, as it turned out, again, Lumpur Chah was very, uh, uh, he was very um, unsystematic as a teacher. He was taught very circumstantially according to conditions and as things popped up. But there was more and more Westerners showing up. And so um, the, the, um, the reason why what Pananachar, the international monastery, began was that it wasn't like a, a, a sort of a, 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 a kind of a, an idea of Ajahn Charles. He just, you know, he could see it might be useful at some point. But uh, a group of the foreigners were traveling off to, to a place to, close to the Moon River where there was a lot of bamboo growing. Uh, so they, and the bamboo is uh, is um, a material that burns very hot. So when you are when you the old style arms bowls were made of soft steel, and you'd have to bake them very very hot to create an oxide coat to protect them, so they wouldn't rust. So uh, so um, Ajahn Sumedho and about four or five other Western uh, monks were traveling down to Bakutwai, where there was a lot of bamboo, to fire their bowls. And they just stopped over in Bungwai village on the way, which is a little village about uh, seven kilometers from the main monastery, Wabapong. And um, the villagers said, please, can you stay here? Start a monastery. We've got a forest and no, uh, and no forest monks. Uh, many of the villagers were disciples of Ajahn Chah, and Ajahn Sumedha said, well, we can't just stay here and <laughs> start a monastery. You have to talk to Lumpur. So they went over, talked to Lumpur Chah. Lumpur Chah said, you know, if the village uh, approve and they want to donate the, the forest uh, to invite the, the Western monks to live there, okay. So that was how Wat Pananachat began. It was really uh, circumstantial, just sort of the way that things fell out. And that was 1975. And um, things... Um, uh, took off very rapidly there. Um, by the within a, a year or so, there was about twenty, twenty-five Western uh, monks there, uh, and the place had a, a, a lot of, uh, of energy and, and a lot of, um, of uh, commitment. And Ajahn Sumedha had really stepped up to the role of being a teacher. He'd offered Ajahn Chah his life. Said, "Whatever you want me to do, I'll do." <laughs> and so Ajahn Chah said, "Okay, right. Take responsibility. Teach. You can be a leader for this this group." And and uh, when, once that was all in place, then uh, Lumpur Sumato's skill as a teacher and as a leader really uh, um, came alive in a very, very substantial and uh, impressive, powerful way. And uh, the reason why we're here <laughs> is because, uh, uh, again, somewhat circumstantial, 
It was uh, the time of the Vietnam War. Uh, the uh, Laos and Cambodia had both gone communist, and uh, it was uh, things were very precarious. North uh, Ubon Province borders both on Laos and Cambodia, and so the the the, the phrase domino effect was very common in, in Thailand, Northeast Thailand in particular. They thought, okay, Laos has gone, Cambodia's gone, Thailand's going to go next, and the Northeast is the first part, uh, is closest. So he was thinking about, well, we've got all these Western monks, and if, if we get taken over by the communist uh, forces, where will we go? What will we do? And his mother fell ill, uh, Lumpur's mother fell ill, and he went back to... Um, visit her, first visit back to the West in California, and he thought, well, I'll, maybe I'll look around and see if any of the Buddhist groups or any of the people who have been monks in Thailand before have, have got to anything going, or they might want to invite us to start something. But uh, his travels in America, West Coast, East Coast, and around, people said, yeah, nice to see you, Tensomato, yes, uh, glad, to, glad that things are going well for you, and like, no invitations, no, nothing, uh, uh, nothing moving there at all in terms of uh, enthusiasm to start a monastery. So he said as he was leaving America, and that was in late 76, he thought, well, I guess we'll just have to stay in Thailand and see what happens. And uh, at that time, uh, the, you couldn't get planes to Thailand every day of the week, and uh, so he had a around-the-world ticket, and he had a, a ticket that would get him to London, and had, had a three-day stopover in London, and then um, been flying on to, to Bangkok. So he, th he, uh, he thought, well, I've got to be in London for three days. Um, and he had the address of Wat Pudupadipa uh, and also Ajahn Panyawada, whose portrait is up on the wall there, uh, had said, uh, if you're ever in London, if you need any help, uh, here's the name of the organization that I used to be part of. Uh, the, the head of it's a man called George Sharp. And here's his phone number. If you need any help, you know, give George a call. And Lumpur Sumedha, apparently, he and his uh, attendant, uh, Pansak, they uh, came to Buddha and Buddha said, oh, terribly sorry, we've got a, a big ceremony going on, the place is full up, we haven't got any room, we can't really accommodate you. So he thought, oh, okay, well, what will I do? Oh, I've got this number of Mr. Sharp and the English Anger Trust. Uh, called up George Sharp. George Sharp said, yes, of course, you're welcome. And uh, then... Uh, Again, the rest is history. Lumpur went to uh, the Hampstead Vihara, which didn't have any, any Sangha members. It had one Anagarika living there, uh, Anagarika Jerry Rollison, <laughs> as a caretaker. Uh, hadn't had any monks there for quite some time, and he, they invited him to speak, and people were extremely impressed and said, can you stay? <laughs> Please uh, stay here. And he said, well, I just started a monastery in Thailand two year, you know, less than two years ago. I can't just up sticks and stay here. And so then George, who's a very can-do kind of person, said, well, can I talk to your teacher? He said, yes. So George arranged to fly out to Thailand, invited Ajahn Chah, and then they came here to England in May of 77. Uh, and they were, they were established in, uh, in Hampstead for a couple of years, and then they were given Chithurst Forest, and they moved out from, from London to, to Chithurst. And then... Uh, after a few years at Chithurst, uh, again, things grew very, very rapidly. Lumpur's uh, influence as a teacher and a leader had a very, very powerful effect. So the, uh, the house was filled with, uh, with monks and the cottage was filled with nuns and outbuildings also. <laughs> and so he was looking for a bigger place. And also there was so much interest in, in retreats that he thought we need to fi find a place, that, a bigger place for the nuns community and a place where we can run retreats. And he was uh, speaking out loud, um, just sort of thinking out loud and, and speaking to visitors to Chithurst in the summer of 83. And uh, a couple of the people who were there, Barbara and Peter Jackson, said, Venerable Sumato, are you serious about this, this interest? And he said, yes, I am. Would you like us to start looking? And he said, yes, yes, please do. And it just so happened that Peter Jackson was in property is a, a, a commercial uh, real estate, and they started looking around, and it was actually Barbara who um, who was, had been in education, and she called up the, uh, the this, this was a school run by the Bedford Education Committee, 
and she rang up the Bedford Educational Committee and said, do you have any old schools that you're closing down or that, uh, in, uh, that will come on the market in the near future? Um, we're, I'm speaking on behalf of a Buddhist community. We're looking for a place to be uh, a, a residence for nuns, for monks, and to be a retreat center. And again, famously, the person on the other end of the line said, Mrs. Jackson, we've been waiting for your call. <laughs> the place, they've been trying to sell this place for seven years and couldn't sell it. And then uh, the English Sangha Trust and, and the Jacksons came along. So here we are. So reflecting on, on Lumpur's teachings and, uh, and that whole uh, process, his life and his work, he has a, an extraordinary ability to, to teach, to inspire, and to be a, a skillful and creative uh, leader, an innovative leader. Uh, when I, I, I first showed up at Wat Nanachat in, in uh, January of 78, so he'd already moved to England by that time. So his reputation was there, <laughs> but uh, he had gone. So I didn't meet him at that, at that time. And uh, we would hear word from how things were going in London, and we, uh, they would send letters or, or cassette tapes uh, to, to send news to Wat Nanashat. And to be honest, I was quite frightened. It seemed I was quite, quite sort of intimidated because I heard you know, things... Um, uh, things were, were quite challenging in, in the Hampstead Vihara. It was in the winter time. It was sort of cold and, and dim, and they find themselves getting very gloomy. So, you know, Ajahn Sumedho had instituted a practice of of ten-hour sittings. You'd sit for five hours, have a five-minute break, and then sit for another five hours, just to really kind of rouse the energy. I thought, ten hours. You know, my knees were screaming after forty-five minutes. I thought. Ooh, well, this Ajahn Sumedho does certainly means business, but I'm really glad I'm here in Thailand with a nice, moderate uh, Ajahn Pabakaro who uh, does, does things in a much more balanced way. I also heard that, uh, again, to rouse energy because things were a bit sort of gloomy and, and, and dim and cold in the wintertime, they were instituted of, of mandatory cold showers at three in the morning, again, just to get the energy flowing. I thought, cold showers in England at three in the morning? I'm really glad I'm here at Watananachat. <laughs> so uh, when, uh, at the end of the, the rains retreat in 79, when I, I was due to be coming back to, to visit England, and uh, my dad had had a heart attack, and I was sort of scooting back as quick as I could. To be honest, I wasn't particularly keen to meet Ajahn Sumato, and I'd, I'd heard this, the, you know, the monastery was, uh, they'd moved out of London, they just started up this new place in, in Sussex. So I really wasn't looking for a way to to um, to get there. You know, I was uh, I, uh, the the stories of the cold showers at three in the morning and ten hour sittings. Uh, somehow they'd really sunk into a certain part of my my uh, uh, comfort seeking psyche, <laughs> my, that that image that doesn't want to be too challenged. And so, so it was in a way, it was really good. I didn't have an idea of, oh, I really want to be with Ajahn Sumedho. Whatever I can do to, to be in this place, this is, yeah, I, I, want, I want that to happen. It was more like, okay, well, you know, I'm here and I'll, I sh I'll go and pay respect as is appropriate and we'll, we'll see how it is. So that kind of reticence on my part, I wasn't deliberate, but it was in, in hindsight, it was, I'm really glad because I didn't have a lot of ideas or expectations. Um, other than <laughs> ones that were frightening. So when I met uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedho, it was just uh, a few days after I got back to England, which is in October of, of uh, 1979, uh, there was the, the eight precept ceremony for the first group of nuns, uh, the uh, Sister Rojana, Sister Sundra, Sister Chandasiri and Danisara. They had their eight precept ceremony. And then there was a bhikkhu ordination on the Thames, at uh, the same uh, the same time that they they didn't have a seema a boundary for doing ordinations at Chithurst and so they did it on a boat in the Thames with venerable Sadatisa as a preceptor so that was my first meeting at uh, Lumpur Sumedho I, I went down uh, to to uh, see him my family was in Kent and Chithurst was in Sussex so uh, uh so my first meeting with him um yeah <laughs> my my uh Anxious expectations were, were sort of dissolved. And I thought, oh, he's a really nice person. <laughs> I didn't need to be so intimidated or worried. I thought he's going to be this sort of um, uh, kind of um, stick-bearing, uh, kind of a ferocious teacher, uh, 
that would kind of beat us all into enlightenment. So he's a really nice guy. <laughs> he's a really, really kind, very gentle person, and and very funny. And uh, and so we had a, a great conversation and uh, to, uh, meeting him. So I thought, oh, then, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind coming to live here. <laughs> I was still uh, had a lot of things. As soon as my father was off the critical list after his heart attack, my mother collapsed. She had a, a intestinal blockage, so she was in hospital in Tunbridge Wells, and my father was in hospital in Ashford. So, my sisters and I were shuttling between the two hospitals for about a month. So, by the time both parents were out of hospital and back in circulation, then I was free to go to Chithurst. So, I was really keen to, <laughs> to be there by that time. But one of the things, bef uh, when I first met him, and what I wanted to pass on today, because uh, you know we're a forest tradition community, and we're very strict uh, in Vinaya, and, and he knew I'd just come out of living in, in the forest monasteries in Thailand, and he knew that I had this whole, whole family crisis and, uh, that was going on with my mother and my father, both hospitalized. And, uh, and, I, uh, and just as I was paying respects to leave, uh, I said, um, Tanajan, do you have any advice for me to for staying with my family? And he just said, "Don't be difficult." Oh. <laughs> and that was that was his advice: was you know, don't be difficult. Uh, and I think he could see how being very sincere, very young. I was only just twenty-two at the time. So, yeah, twenty-two. Um, oh, twenty-three. I just turned twenty-three, and. Um, the uh, you know very ardent, very keen, trying to do everything right, and you could uh, see. It. But you're in the West. You're with a family. Your family aren't Buddhists, <laughs> and so don't be difficult. Don't you know? Just be be adaptable. Be be ready to see the the situation that you're in, and that was incredibly good advice. You know, so that yes, we, uh, you're sincere, you're keen, you want to do everything well, you want to be a good monk, but you're in England, you're with a family of people who are not Buddhists, and you're their son, and you're your brother, and you're the brother, and so pay attention to that, don't ignore that. So that was a really good example, right at the very beginning, the first, literally the first contact with him, you know, that's very practical and very attuned to circumstances. You know, yes, he was a, you know, a sincere, rule-keeping monk and very dedicated and committed uh, himself, and then encouraging that in the people around him, but also, where are you? What's the situation? You know, how uh, how to, to work things? And he'd inherited that same kind of spirit from Lumpo Cha when, uh, when Lumpo Cha had come to the West in 1977, the first time uh, Lumpo Sumedha had seen very, very regularly how Lumpo Cha could sort of mindfully uh, you know, observe and adapt to circumstances according to what was needed, not just be sort of fixed on the traditional way of doing things. He learned how to shake hands. He'd never, sh he'd never shaken hands with anybody before. So Ajahn Chah said, teach me how to, how do you shake hands? How do you do that? <laughs> so uh, then going to some of Lumpur Sumedha's other particular teachings that um, I was giving some readings this morning. And uh, over the years... Um, uh, I've just felt so grateful and uh, and have uh, been helped immeasurably by listening to Lumpur Sumato's teachings and putting them, them into practice to the best of my ability and just seeing the good results. One of the teachings that he gave was was mentioned this morning that that uh, the habit of mind that says you know I'm an unenlightened person who's got to do something now in order to be enlightened in the future and you think well. Yes, <laughs> that's what it says in the books, and that, that, isn't that the fact? Uh, and he would say, notice how the mind sets up that paradigm. I am an unenlightened person. That's what I am. And I've got to do something now in order to, for, for me to become an enlightened person in the future. And he would point out the whole of that, that attitude is cast into the, in, into the form of self-view. I am a person. Like, you know, ding, wrong view. <laughs> the, the, the body is not self. The, uh, the uh, thoughts and emotions and feelings, these are not self. So you say, rather than uh, I'm an unenlightened person who's got to do something now in order to become enlightened in the future, be awake now. And so that kind of uh, noticing how the mind is set up, the attitudes of mind, and then skillfully rephrasing things to, to fit uh, to change the attitude, so oh yeah, that's right. We we cast things in in a context of self-view. Therefore, the result is going to be dukkha. Aha! Uh -huh. So changing the 
the view to be awake now rather than um, putting, seeing everything in personal terms. And on a, in a similar vein, the, um, uh, uh, he would say, don't think of it in terms of me and my problems, but the Buddha seeing the Dhamma, rather than, I've got this problem, I've got a problem with laziness, I've got a problem with, with agitation, I've got a problem with lust or anger, or, yeah, I've got a problem with doubting, and, and, I, and I've got to get rid of my doubts, I've got to get rid of my lust, my anger, my, my restlessness, and then I, I will be happy. Uh, he said, in exactly the same way, notice how the mind thinks in terms of me and my problems. And if I get rid of my problems, then there'll be me without the problems, and that will be good. Uh, again, look, notice. That's, the whole thing is being cast in a framework of self-view. That I am a person. What, is, that, is that so? <laughs> the, the mind in this moment can know personal qualities, the, the sounds that we hear, the feelings of heat or cold, the weight of the body. We can notice those personal things, the thoughts and memories of our minds, that those, those personal qualities uh, are experienced, but they arise, they pass away. That which knows those personal qualities, yeah, that is the awake, aware mind. That's what we will call the Buddha mind, the, the puru, the, the, the element of knowing. So those I found were incredibly helpful and insightful uh, ways of sort of rejigging the attitude and using it as a basis for, for meditation practice. Also, with respect to loving kindness, he would uh, when he, he used to do loving kindness meditations. And I was talking about this on the, the weekend, and he would use the sort of classical form of imagining beings that are nearby, beings that are medium distance away, beings that are far away, and then human beings, animals, birds, fishes, insects, beings in different realms, and going through these lists of beings yeah, uh, and uh, and he uh, and uh, and to wishing everyone to be happy and he realized well when he talks that way and he thinks that way it can be a bit mechanical and also it has this sort of atmosphere of thinking pig just trying to sort of sugar everything over and he realized that many people he was talking to particularly in this country they were kind of put off by that it's a, and they would they would sometimes say Venerable Sumato, this is so sentimental. You know, this is, you know, is this really what loving kindness is about? This is just sort of such a, a kind of superficial way of, of approaching it. And he thought, oh, right, okay. It's not just a matter of sugaring things over or thinking pink. So he changed the languaging and he started talking in terms of not dwelling in aversion as a basis of metta. So he realized you can be kind to things that you don't like. You, you can. You don't have to. In, matter isn't about trying to like everything, but recognizing we can be kind to to towards things and mind states, beings that are unlikable. So he was very creative in that that kind of respect, and he would you know try things out and see what and see whether they worked. Similarly, um, he noticed that uh, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on emotions and my, uh, and working with emotions, and people, particularly in the West, were often the most, uh, uh, say, significant factor in our lives was, was difficult emotions, feeling you know, angry or jealous or self-critical or, or, you know, or, or being in love or being uh, uh, in a state of conflict. And um, he realized that not many people seem to, they seem to think that, that emotions don't really belong in the practice. You want to try and get your thoughts to be quiet and then you get to, to concentrate, you develop insight. And he realized... For for many many Westerners, they, they they they've got this weird idea that oh, and sometimes again people would even say, Venerable Samadhi, Buddhists shouldn't have emotions, should they? We really shouldn't have any feelings. Is that right? He'd say, what? <laughs> and as if any kind of emotion was somehow contrary to the path or was an intrusion. And so he he developed a whole way of of uh, of uh, say exploring and getting perspective on emotions uh, in a way far more detailed and, and specific to uh, the western environment i would say than what you find in the pali canon and using methods of of deliberately rousing an emotion like anger or fear or jealousy or, or desire or or regret deliberately arousing an emotion in order to explore it and to 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 know it through the feelings of the body and and he sort of developed a whole way of speaking about that and guiding meditations in that way because he saw 
in this culture, in this environment, that's something that's needed. And, and uh, because people are suppressing their emotion or ignoring them, but they're really affected by them. These are the most important things in people's lives. So uh, mindfulness of, of emotions and emo feeling emotions in the body, that was a, another extremely sort of impactful method of approach. Yeah, also, uh, the, um, uh, we are a uh, Dutanga tradition. We, 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 we build our life around a, a number of ascetic practices and then walking through the countryside, uh, going on, on uh, long walks through the countryside is a uh, part of our lives. And uh, it's not quite as developed uh, in, in every monastery and in the same way, uh, but we still try to keep that tradition going. Uh, Ajahn Vinita and Bodhi been uh, from here been uh, just very recently out on two dongs. And so um, one of the, th the reasons why we go on these, these Dutanga walks, these, these kind of uh, uh, these long trips through the, through the countryside and living in remote places is to deal with, with discomfort and to learn how to work with, with tiredness, with hunger, with sleep deprivation. <laughs> Exhaustion, learning also if you're just walking with one other person, learning to get along with each other. Uh, as I, I've often mentioned, when I did a long walk through England from the monastery in Sussex to the one in Northumberland uh, by a very wiggly route of 830 miles uh, through the countryside, it never occurred to me that the, a major factor of the walk would be uh, getting along with my companion. It just literally didn't cross my mind before we set off. And, by, and as the walk proceeded, I realized you can be out in this vast open landscape, but the only thing is him. <laughs> There's one other person in the kind of relationship between you. We didn't fight you know, too much. <laughs> uh, well, not physically, but uh, didn't have too many disagreements. But it was amazing that thinking about the other person, keeping a track on their mood, their energy, how, how things were going for them. I thought, there you are, out, out in the fens of of East Anglia, the vast open landscape, great, great wilderness area, and what's filling it is your relationship. <laughs> oh, this never crossed my mind. Uh, and it's the same with, with families. I'm sure any, any of you have been out with the family members, your partners or your parents or your children. You can be in the most perfect place. It's a wonderful you know, holiday destination. And this fantastic surroundings, wonderful kind of exotic or beautiful place. And the only thing that's present is the family dynamic, like her, him, <laughs> this, the issue. Like the whole landscape is filled with the, the, the dynamic of the relationship. So as part of what we, on, on these two dong walks, you're exploring physical challenges, but also these kind of psychological challenges. So on one occasion, uh, I was able to go on a two-dong walk with, with Lumpur Sumato. Uh, this was 1987. And um, it was one of the, again, it wasn't a planned circumstance, but it just worked out that way. Originally, there was a three-week period for the two-dong. And our trusty guide, who was the same person I'd walked through England with in 83, Nick Scott, he was going to be walking with us and helping to guide things. So he set up a, he's, he got a, a route planned and set up a number of, of contacts and people to meet along the way over a three-week period. Then three weeks became two weeks. <laughs> so we had to squish three weeks' worth of contacts and miles into a two-week period. So that produced a number of challenges along the way. And uh, so uh, anyway, the, there was many wonderful things. The, the first day we set out was on a, a canal bank and so it's level. <laughs> Beautiful sunny day, puffy white clouds. Oh, this is this Tudong is great. Walking with Lumpur Sumedho, Nick Scott's out front, kind of reading the maps and guiding the way, choosing the campsites. This is great. Then after the first day, then we climbed up into the the um, the Boland, um, the forest of Boland, kind of up the steep hill into the, these hills of Lancashire, North Lancashire, and uh, we, we climbed up this, this steep hill up into this this. Um, the forest area, and it was horizontal rain, kind of wild, lashing storms for days and days and days, poured with rain. So I had one beautiful sunny day on the level, and then <laughs> the kind of ferocious, uh, uh, full-strength weather uh, for the next uh, little while, and it was incredibly wet. We, and after a week of walking through the area, we finally came out, uh, out down from the hills 
to Morecambe Bay, and everything that we possessed was soaking wet. Our clothes were all wet. What we were wearing was wet. Everything in our packs was wet. The packs were wet. There was, we, when we went, we, we camped that night, and there was a, we had one dry sock between three of us. Everything else was soaking wet. That was the only dry thing was one sock. Everything was wet. The tents were wet. The sleeping bags were wet. And uh, so I was sharing a tent with, with, with Lumpur, and, uh, and <laughs> so and we, anyway, it was really cold, really tired, and, and uh, climbing into this, this soaking wet tent into these wet sleeping bags. And he said, you know, climbing into a wet sleeping bag in a dripping tent in a rainstorm, it's quite all right. This, you know, the, you think about it and you think, this is horrible, this is unbearable. But actually, as I'm lying in this wet sleeping bag, it's actually not that bad. And he, that came up in a number of Dhamma talks shortly after, <laughs> and in, in subsequent years. The idea of such a thing would be horrible, but actually, in itself, it's just this. It's nothing dreadful. It's just this experience in this moment. And then uh, we came out of, that, uh, of the, the, that area to a Buddhist center, and they had huge washing machines and huge tumble dryers. I never felt such passion for a tumble dryer before. <laughs> dry, managed to dry everything off and uh, get, get cleaned up. And, uh, but it was also, uh, along with that, that experience of climbing into a wet sleeping bag in a dripping tent in a rainstorm, uh, whilst we were in the middle of the, of the hills in the forest, uh, and Nick was, was brewing up uh, some tea on the, the, a little billy can over a, a fire made of twigs from heather and, and grass. And, uh, <clears throat> and so the, the water was far from purified and there were bits of twigs and, uh, and uh, debris in the, in, the, in the water and made this, this uh, cup of tea for us. And we're sitting like, sort of perched on this steep hillside with this not incredibly hot tea. And I remember Lumpur saying, this is the best cup of tea I've ever had. And he really meant it. <laughs> but, yeah, in that kind of condition, so you can have twigs floating around in it and bits of, bits of peat and you know, stuff. And, and, and you're, you're kind of perched on an uncomfortable slope. But say, yes, this is delightful. And so it was a great insight into what we need to make us happy. So the... Uh, um, the, the the years have brought many wonderful uh, experiences like that for myself, uh, being close to Lumpur and endeavouring to be a good student and uh, to follow his his instruction, his guidance. Um, but I was, once again, I, I, just to, to finish, I would uh, emphasise what an extraordinarily imaginative and creative teacher he has been. He's been not afraid to experiment and do things differently. He's very faithful, very sincere, very committed to his own training, his own practice. But uh, being in the West and uh, being in this age, he's been very courageous, incredibly courageous uh, to change the robes. Like these jackets that we have, these are actually copied from a Korean model. <laughs> when we first came to, to the West, um, the... Uh, the, the the group of monks and novices that were gathered, that we, we had different sort of sweatshirts and t-shirts and pullovers and have the robe over uh, one shoulder because it, you know, it was really cold in the buildings there. And Ajahn Chah said, um, oh, it, you know, the way you're wearing things, it's really untidy. And he said, well, we can't go bare-shouldered because it's so freezing, we can't afford to heat the house <laughs> to go around with a bare shoulder. And so he said, well, wear your, your robes over both shoulders. So Lumpur Chah simply was very creative. So we had a, we used to wear our robes over both shoulders for the first couple of years I was in England. Then Ajahn Munindo, uh, whose name was Tan Upano at that time, he'd been in New Zealand. He had met a Korean, uh, a, a New Zealander who'd been training in Korea, and he thought, oh, these Koreans, they've got really neat jackets. This is a good design. And he's a very good sewer. So he got the, he got the sewing pattern from this Korean monk, Hamwol, Venerable Hamwol, and he brought that along with him and he joined us at Chithurst and he said, uh, uh, Tanajan, can, uh, can I make a design for some jackets for us to use so we would all have the, the same kind of a jacket and then we could wear the robe over one shoulder and have a, a bit of a uniform? And, and Lumpur Samedi said, yes, give it a try. So he was ready to experiment, something they don't, you, you never see monks in Thailand wearing these jackets. These just don't exist there. 
But he was ready to say, yeah, okay, it's, it's not part of our tradition, but let's try it. We need it. It's cold in this country. Let's, let's use, do that. Similarly, uh, starting the, the Siladara order, that was uh, uh, even more radical to, uh, to you know, recognizing that uh, the eight, what was available for women initially was just the eight precept ordination. Uh, and um, by the time, so the Chithurst Monastery started in 79, and then the first group of, of four um, Anagari Khars uh, were, uh, took the eight precepts at the end of that year. But by the time we got to 82, uh, then those He'd was been doing some bhikkhu ordinations, and the, but the uh, the initial group of nuns and the other women who come along since then were still in white. And so people began to ask, you know, "Is uh, 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 the the sisters going to be in white? Are they going to be in the kitchen forever?" You know, all these other young men are coming along, taking the bhikkhu ordination, and what's going to happen for the for the women? And so he again took notice. Of, yeah, that's a, that's an extremely good question. I've been thinking about the same thing. What can we do? And so he um, began to discuss and to, to consider it and, and talked with you know, various elders and then and with the community and then the Siladara uh, ordination uh, process and this form of training evolved out of that from 1983. The, the summer of 83 was the first uh, 10 precept ordination for this community for the for the Siladara. So that was an extraordinary, courageous step. Um, and it was, uh, but uh, I feel it's a, uh, something that is um, characteristic of, of Lumpur Sumato is that you know, not knowing whether it, uh, it, it's going to work or <laughs> giving it a try, and, but r- responding to circumstances in the, in the best way possible and re- being ready to put his time, his energy, his effort and his, his skill uh, behind it. And yeah, many other things in terms of our, our lives and training. Amravati, so Chithurst was a, a, a kind of crumbled down Victorian mansion. It looked like it was a sort of H.P. Lovecraft meets Charles Dickens and Edgar Allan Poe. It was a kind of covered in ivy. The whole place was filled with dry rot. So when they, they moved in, there was 35 broken down cars parked in the, in the grounds at the the, the son of the family had a driving school and he had a weird practice of if a car broke down, he just parked it and bought a new one and carried on with the driving lessons in a fresh car. So it was 35 dead cars around Chithurst house. Uh, it was only four rooms of the 22 rooms were habitable. The rest were filled with, with collected, hoarded stuff and, and dry rot. <laughs> so uh, Chithurst hadn't, had hardly been finished. So we moved in in... in in 79. I arrived in October of 79, about three or four months after the main group had appeared. And so we were working vigorously to clear out all the dry rot, to put in new floors, to change the roof. And just about got the house fixed up when he had this conversation with the Jacksons and, uh, <laughs> and uh, said, you know, this place is too small, we need a bigger place. And uh, the, um, the, the people in the English Sanger Trust were like, Venerable sir, <laughs> we we are, uh, we've only just managed to fix this place up, and we've got you know twenty, we've got a hundred acres of forest and, and twenty acres of paddocks around the, the house, and you know we would have thought you would just like to settle here and to to um, just you know make this your base, and uh, again uh, uh, when asked about this, uh, Lumpur Sumato said, you know, it's a part of me. So, oh, this is a really lovely place. I can just settle here, and if there's more people who want to come along and ordain, we'll just send them somewhere else. They can go to Thailand or start other places. But you know, I'd really like just to sort of make this my home and just settle down in the Sussex countryside. And he said he heard himself thinking that and thought, no, that's that's small-minded. You know, there's, there's there's a need, there's an initiative. We need we need to go for it. So that um, by that time, the the English Sangha Trust. Not, I'm not saying they doubted him too much, <laughs> but they had enough confidence that this monk really knows what he's doing and he's really uh, re- really skilled at getting things done and he can attract support. So they just said, okay, we'll, 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 uh, we'll back you up on that. And so then uh, after they'd found this property, it was St. Margaret's School, um, and they, the, the Jacksons brought uh, Lumpur to visit. I think they'd stopped off at Martin Evans's place along the way. Is that correct, Martin? 
So they, Martin was a, a very happy Hemel Hempstead Buddhist, like Ajahn Tomatoes moving here to Hemel. <laughs> well, <laughs> I lived in the right place. So, so I have a lot of mudita for Martin and his family being close by. And uh, Lumpur took one look and said, it's perfect. Uh, and part of the perfection was having um, scruffy wooden buildings that were not listed. <laughs> And we're not sort of 300-year-old stone uh, uh, grade, uh, grade two or grade one listed buildings that would take a fortune to, to, re, uh, to rejig. And so even though they'd barely finished fixing up Chithurst, took on Amravati with, with uh, 32 acres of land and about 20-some-odd buildings. They had done no maintenance here for seven years, so all the you know, windows were cracked and there was no insulation. Uh, it was... Uh, uh, Anyway, it's a whole other story. But they just said, yes, let's go for it. This is the deathless realm. Let's <laughs> move in and make it happen. And so here we are. Uh, this is uh, 38 years later. Uh, well, it actually, 83 was when the, the initiative started, so really 39 years later. Um, since that, yes, let's do it, was launched. And um, that it, we're here because of that readiness of Lumpur Sumedha to to leap, <laughs> to take action, and also to follow through, to, to do everything he, he can to make things work, provide opportunities for people to practice and to expound on the, the teachings. And um, so I uh, express my great, um, my gratitude and my awe at the, the what's come forth from the life of this one person and making that gesture to say, yes, you know, I give up my life for this. And... Uh, to serve in whatever way I, he can. Uh, we are the, the grateful recipients of that gesture that he made. And Sahatu uh, Anamotana. So today is his 88th birthday, and uh, he probably won't wish, us to, won't wish to carry on till 120. <laughs> but uh, may his, uh, all his days be easeful and peaceful and uh, comfortable, and may we continue to be blessed by his, his teaching and his great presence for many years to come.